what holds the sort of unholy on its face alliance between what you would think is anything goes sort of progressives and a strictly Islamist sort of culture. What the glue that holds that together and that Omar so perfectly represents, I would argue, is Jew hatred, which today masquerades as anti-Zionism. But it's not Jew hatred for Jew hatred's sake. It's not about Jews. It's Jews as a representative for and a stand-in for Judeo-Christian Western civilization that both progressives and ardent Islamists ultimately, at core, wish to overturn. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Hi, welcome to the Code Red podcast. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. Today we are dedicating our show to an examination of the radical ideologies that threaten the fabric of our great nation. Our guest is Ben Weingarten has just written and published American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. I highly recommend that everyone listening to this podcast purchase and read this book. Ben, why did you write this book? Why did you dedicate your time and your talents to write this book? And why do you think it is of national importance for Americans to know about Omar's political objectives? Well, Alan, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the show. In response to your question of the why I wrote this book, I think many people, including Speaker Pelosi, and quickly, I think she was convinced otherwise, assumed that Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and the squad were a handful of radicals that, while popular on social media, were not actually politically powerful, did not actually augur that there was something dangerous to American values and principles, to our national security, to our peace and our prosperity. They were treated as marginal figures. And what I quickly discovered as I watched Congresswoman Omar's rise First, her being seated on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which deals with and grapples with the most sensitive issues of national security and foreign policy. Then when the Democratic Party caved with respect to Congresswoman Omar's Jew hatred, very clearly demonstrated, all the way to impeachment. And then today, the proof in the pudding of the fact that the squad is not just a marginal set of individuals, backbenchers in the House of Representatives but actually is mainstreamed in the Democratic Party, is in the face of Senator Bernie Sanders being the leading candidate in the Democratic Party. So the thesis of my book, which is that these were not mere marginal figures, but actually both symbolized and substantively were the real power base, the activists, the energy in the Democratic Party, is being borne out in real time. And the stakes for America are very simple. All you have to do is ask the simple question, what does it mean if the core ethos of a party that represents half of America is one of national self-loathing, is anti-American, is, consists of blame America firsters? How can you expect to defend a country when the party representing half of its people views the country as fundamentally evil, uh, a, a force for horrible consequences in the world? 
they will not defend America. They will seek to overturn and overthrow its core institutions, its core values and principles, and that represents an existential threat that is greater than any external existential threat that we might face. Given her ideology, given her support within the Democratic Party and the, I think you used the term, gutless response to Omar and the squad by Nancy Pelosi and the leadership of the party, let us delve into who is Omar and who does she represent? Yes, she represents, she, her ideas are being represented by Bernie Sanders, but your book does a brilliant job in describing this intersectionality, pardon my stealing your language, of radical Islam and progressivism. And if you could just walk us through, how did Omar, where did she come from? And how did she become this carrier of some very disturbing and dangerous ideas? There's a lot to unpack there. And I, I think the first thing that ought to be said is that Ilhan Omar describes herself as an intersectional feminist. And intersectionality itself sort of relates to multiculturalism and identity politics. And basically, it focuses on not individuals, not treating people as individuals, but treating people as on the basis of their group identities. And there is sort of a hierarchy of the aggrieved. And Ilhan Omar, if one were to look at through the progressive lens at this hierarchy, sort of satisfies every single box as an immigrant, as a proud Muslim, as someone who is a, a minority, and the list goes on and on. And that is one of the reasons why no one has really subjected her to scrutiny, because there's a fear that if you do actually hold her to the same standard as everyone else, you will be accused of being a bigot and have the worst invective hurled at you. In terms of where she comes from, she is sort of the living representation, the symbol of the intersectionalist worldview, in part because I believe, and it's well documented, she comes from Somalia, which during the time when she lived there as a child was still a Marxist Islamist dictatorship. And that is not Ben Weingarten's words. That's the New York Times words writing about the regime in the late 70s and early 80s uh, when she was born. And she self-described comes from a privileged family that prospered under that regime, something as well that has really never been explored. Uh, but she talks about the fact that she comes from a family of civil servants and educators. She lived in something of a compound. Okay, if you live in something of a compound and your family consists of civil servants and educators, what does that mean in a Marxist Islamist dictatorship? One, your relatives were very close to the regime and thus they were taken care of. And two, educators, including her father, for example, who is described as a teacher trainer. A teacher trainer under the Somali regime that her father served was one who was indoctrinated in Marxism, literally by the Soviet Union, and who 
odds are himself taught others, inculcated others in that same worldview. So that's just a little bit. That just touches the surface of her background. Omar and her family end up in a refugee camp in Kenya. Ultimately, they are resettled here in America, uh, originally on the East Coast, and then in Minneapolis, which is a bastion of Somali refugees who were resettled there in the tens and ultimately between 50 and 100,000, certainly. And what is so fascinating about it all is that Omar could have picked up her radical progressivism, and progressivism is really being too kind as a term. It's really a regressive anti-American ideology that she harbors. She could have picked that up either in that Marxist-Islamist sort of milieu in which she grew up as a child and under which her father who raised her himself clearly had almost certainly been indoctrinated or at least served the regime and feigned it, or in Minneapolis. And that is something that should really stun Americans and shock us, that the same worldview might exist in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as in a Marxist-Islamist dictatorship. And in terms of Omar's rise, I think what is particularly important to, to recognize is that she was elected as a state representative in Minneapolis from an enclave that consisted of tens of thousands of Somali refugees who largely shared her worldview, as well as college students. And it was actually American college students who really pushed her over the top in a heated primary that she was able to triumph over a 44-year incumbent icon. So that proves that she was not only politically shrewd, but that she was able to overcome someone who was a real power in Minneapolis. And that tells you that Congresswoman Omar should not be underestimated. But the last point that I'll make is that my thesis in the book is that what holds the sort of unholy on its face alliance between what you would think is anything goes sort of progressives and a strictly Islamist sort of culture, what the glue that holds that together and that Omar so perfectly represents, I would argue, is Jew hatred, which today masquerades as anti-Zionism. But it's not Jew hatred for Jew hatred's sake. It's not about Jews. It's Jews as a representative for and a stand-in for Judeo-Christian Western civilization that both progressives and ardent Islamists ultimately, at core, wish to overturn. We are speaking with Ben Weingarten, who has written an extremely important book called American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. Ben, picking up on your answers, you have a chapter in the book in which you talk about how President Barack Obama and his administration actually laid the groundwork or the foundation for the Omar and Bernie Sanders uh, ideological crusade, which uh, actually, I've, I'll repeat what I said in my introduction, which threatens the very fabric of our nation. Can you talk about the um, Obama role in all of this? Yes, I think as with so many other subjects that we're dealing with as a country today, Barack Obama is sort of the forgotten man in all of this. And the notion that overnight the Democratic Party suddenly went from the JFK Democratic Party, largely patriotic, 
uh, at least not hostile towards traditional religion, traditional values and principles, then all of a sudden overnight has turned into this radicalized party. It's actually been a much more gradual shift, I would say, over the last two decades. And Barack Obama, both in terms of his rhetoric and policies, and also the people with whom he consorted, both at home and abroad, really, in a lot of respects, presages Ilhan Omar. I I say in the book, creates a safe space for Ilhan Omar by shifting the national Overton window leftward. Things that were acceptable by the end of Barack Obama's two terms would have been completely unimaginable, for example, under the Bill Clinton years or under the George W. Bush years. And that encompasses both domestic and foreign policy. So on the domestic side, yeah, obviously the crowning achievement, so-called, of the Obama years was Obamacare. And the battery of policies that Ilhan Omar supports not only parallel the view on Obamacare, but also touch on a whole number of other issues from sort of nationalized public housing to uh, so total socialized medicine and a whole battery of other policies that are in the same direction as the Obama regime, Obama administration, also on envi- radically environmentalist policies and the like. Omar's views parallel those of President Obama. She's just able to push far further left than he could, I argue, because he created a safe space for these more radical positions. And then on the foreign policy and national security side, it's very clear that Barack Obama overturned what had been sort of a consensus as to reasonable positions. And this really, I focus primarily in the book in terms of our adversaries generally, going to our adversaries with, quote unquote, an unclenched fist, an open hand. I would describe it as an appeasement sort of agenda. It went on a world apology tour that continued for eight years, where basically the kind of underlying premise was everything that has gone wrong in the world has been America's fault. And the answer to it is to hug our worst adversaries and punch our closest friends in the mouth. And that perfectly parallels Ilhan Omar's view, and it manifests itself in their shared hostility towards Israel and strengthening of Israel's worst adversaries, and that includes both Palestinian Arab forces, including Hamas and uh, and Islamic Jihad, as well as, on the other side, Iran. And uh, alternatively, of course, the Obama years created kind of a remarkable, unexpected positive, which was that there grew a Sunni Arab and Israeli, at least partnership, at least under the radar partnership. And naturally then, Ilhan Omar's greatest foes on the foreign policy side, or the nations with which she holds the greatest contempt are for America, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. And it's no surprise that she ends up where she does. And again, it precisely parallels Barack Obama's views, his policies, and this is not even to mention all of the radical people who he included in his regime, both on the progressive side and the Islamist side, uh, as well as those he invited into the White House and legitimized. Those are exactly the circles that Ilhan Omar runs in today. Omar, as you point out in your book, among other policies that she has pushed very forcefully, is a strong opponent of any type of plan, such as building the wall to control illegal immigration into our country. 
Why do you think that is? How does this fit into her ideology, the idea of having open borders in our country? I think on the one hand, there is general hostility, and she'll actually slander, has slandered on numerous occasions, immigrations and custom officials, border patrol individuals, claims that they torture people at the borders and the like. What I believe is she takes the perspective, at least she would argue this way, that open borders is the moral and just policy. In other words, that the rest of the world has a right to come to America to become U.S. citizens, effectively regardless of what their ideology is, whether they'll actually contribute positive, positively to the country, et cetera, that others have a positive right, in effect, to become U.S. citizens. And I think what that stems from at core is her belief that if America is the root of the world of evil around the world, and she ties almost every possible negative event uh, plight of people in the world to American, quote-unquote, militarism, expansionism, imperialism, and the like, then it is only moral and just that those in the world who have been threatened by America, who have borne the brunt of America's horrific policies, should have a right to come here and to set up shop in America. So I think at core, that is really what undergirds her policy. Now, of course, there's the other side of this, which is to the extent you have mass immigration, generally speaking, that's going to support Democrats and help the Democratic Party and ultimately cause a situation where there's a permanent Democratic majority. So there's a cynical element to it as well, uh, but she would probably express it in terms of social, quote-unquote, justice, and, and I would suggest that justice needs no modifier, and social justice actually perverts the concept of real justice, especially for Americans. And I guess that's the last core point that ought to be made, is that her view of putting America last, of prioritizing the peoples of the world over the American people, necessitates ju justice from her perspective, necessitates putting Americans down and elevating everyone else. We are speaking with author Ben Weingarten, whose book, his most recent book, is American Ingrate. Uh, it is a look into the ideology behind Congresswoman Ilan Omar, and uh, it is a very important book that I hope as many Americans as possible will actually. Uh, the outrageous things that Omar has said, I think near the top of the list, and then I was reminded of it while reading the book, was her reaction to the vicious attack on the World Trade Center, the 9-11 attack. Can you recount what she said? Yes, the direct quote, and it deserves the full context because her defenders will claim that this was uh, completely perverted in the way that it was portrayed, was raise hell make people uncomfortable, and understand, by the way, I should pre preface this with the fact that this was in front of CARES Los Angeles annual fundraising banquet. Raise hell, make people uncomfortable, because here's the truth. For too long, we've lived with the discomfort of being a second-class citizen, and frankly, I'm tired of it, and every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it. CARE was founded after 9-11 because they recognize that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. 
So she characterizes the worst jihadist attack on American soil in our history as some people doing something. Thank you um, for repeating her words within the context. Can you explain for our audience what CARE is? Yes. CARE is the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And as I show with substantial evidence in the book, first it bears noting that CARE is an unindicted co-conspirator in what was at the time and likely still is the largest terrorist financing prosecution in American history. Basically, it was found that beyond the fact that the people who started CARE were associated with a group that fundraised on behalf of jihadists, CARE itself served as a conduit, in effect, for that group. The, the case was called the Holy Land Foundation case. And both CARE and the Holy Land Foundation and a whole raft of other organizations with, with, with which Ilhan Omar has been associated, consorted, spoken in front of, in some cases directly received money from, in the case of CARE, certainly, and also received contributions from their members of the, all of these organizations as well. CARE itself, at the time following 9-11, had a fundraising uh, sort of link on its own website, which linked to the Holy Land Foundation as part of the so-called recovery effort. And ultimately, we would find out that the Holy Land Foundation itself served as a front for the Muslim Brotherhood, particularly, or specifically, rather, Hamas and other groups. And so CARE, from its very beginnings, was linked to the Muslim Brotherhood and its associated organizations, the Muslim Brotherhood being the tip of the Sunni Islamist spear from which virtually all of the Sunni Islamist jihadist groups come, stems from. And Omar, in, in delivering that remark in front of CARE, it proved particularly ironic because CARE was not founded after 9-11. CARE was funded well before 9-11, so she was factually incorrect. But what CARE was actually doing after 9-11 was, in effect, helping fundraise on behalf of a group that was a jihadist group itself, which certainly would have supported what transpired on 9-11. So the fact that she delivered those remarks in that setting for me, is the jumping-off point for what I argue is the case for her collusion with adversaries foreign and domestic on the Islamist side in particular, and that's both dignitaries in foreign regimes as well as these individuals in groups that support the Islamist agenda in America that each, in their own ways, have a raft of ties both historical and present to the modern Muslim Brotherhood. Then is it fair to say that Omar is the poster girl for CARE? She seems to pop up at CARE events all the time. Yes, I, I think it's absolutely fair to say that. And as I noted, she's received income from CARE. She's received campaign contributions from any number of folks who are affiliated with CARE. CARE's leaders constantly praise her. They support her policies in Congress. They co-sign co letters from her dealing with all manner of issues impacting the Islamic community. Uh, it's abundantly clear that she is inextricably intertwined with this organization. She is never called out on it. 
And the sad reality is, and sort of the sad bipartisan secret, is that far too many members of Congress, and this shamefully includes both Republicans and Democrats, affiliate with CARE, treat it as a legitimate organization, when historically the FBI has said that there should be no outreach, basically, between government officials, government authorities, and CARE as an unindicted co-conspirator, again, in the largest jihadist financing case in U.S. history. So for someone who frequently talks about human rights and American hypocrisy and all the horrendous things that America is responsible for. This is someone who consorts regularly with a group affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, which seeks to not only foment jihad, both peaceful, quote unquote, the more subversive sort of jihad and violent jihad globally, but which at its core ultimately wishes to impose a totalitarian Sharia-based system on us all. So the level of hypocrisy from someone who claims always that America is hypocritical is really beyond the pale. Throughout your book, American Ingrate, you have instances or quotes uh, from Omar, which uh, she describes herself through her quotes. And one of them that struck me was Thanksgiving of 2017. And her words were, as we celebrate today, take a moment to recognize our indigenous neighbors whose land we occupy. To me, that says that uh, she doesn't see this as a legitimate government, that the founding was an illegitimate uh, attack on some peaceful folks, uh, that there was no transaction that took place on Manhattan Island to sell the land. Um, is this an insight into what had sometimes been called the, called the New York Times 1619 project that seeks to wipe out the entire founding of our country? I think that the 1619 Project fits perfectly within her worldview, as well as specifically her view as to American history, uh, our legitimacy. And basically, it really stems from a core belief that, as you absolutely rightfully put it, we are not a legitimate nation. We weren't. We were conceived in sin, and thus everything that is derived from that original sin makes our country evil, deplorable, irredeemable. And if that is your view of America, that this is a horrendous experiment that has been one of oppression, the scourge of the earth, putting people down, rather than the greatest force for liberty in the history of mankind that has created more peace and more prosperity than ever has been enjoyed in any other nation, while also providing many of these fruits of liberty for the rest of the world as well, and that's in both ideological terms and material terms. If your view is that this is a horrendous experiment, then it must be consigned to the dustbin of history, and it legitimizes, it justifies the idea that you not only should, but you are compelled to seek to overthrow our core values, principles, and institutions. And not only that, but that it is the moral, right, just thing to do. And that is how those like Ilhan Omar seek to justify positions that are completely at odds with not just the founding, but everything that's transpired really in the history of this nation. Uh, they seek to overturn this nation as the bastion of Judeo-Christian Western civilization because they view it as an inherently evil civilization and the U.S. as the apotheosis 
of that evil. So I do think that that quote is representative of her worldview. I think it parallels the view of the 1619 Projects, which again, seeks to sow in the hearts of Americans basically a view that this is a horrible country and that the only natural response to it is that we have to overthrow it. And they may not put it in those terms overtly, but again, if you look at what the positions are that, for example, Bernie Sanders has advocated for virtually his entire life, you look at who his surrogates are, by the way, including Ilhan Omar, who was recently named as the co-chair of his, of his campaign in Minnesota, it, it's abundantly clear that this is really truly what they believe. And what that means, again, is that you have a party representing half the country who at least a substantial portion of it, you know, a plurality, if not a majority, truly believe that the country is at core rotted, evil, cruel, and that the only moral, just, righteous thing to do is to overthrow it, which would be a disaster for not only this country, but for freedom everywhere. Earlier, you talked about how, despite enormous differences, at least on paper, between the Muslim side of Omar and the progressive leftist side of Omar, that the unity comes around the a very virulent and uh, a very strong anti-Semitism. Can you talk a bit about how the left and the radical Islam come together um, in their hatred of Israel and Jewish people? Yes, and there are historical roots of this as well. And in the book, I go into pretty great detail on how both among the early leftists, and by early leftists, I'm speaking of those socialists and Marxists ultimately in the 19th century, as well as basically since the advent of Islam, Jew hatred has played a role in both of these ideologies. Ironically, when it comes to leftists, oftentimes many people who were born Jews themselves actually advocated these positions. They advocated them for different reasons. What I think unites the two sides at core is their view that it's Judeo-Christian Western civilization that stands in the way of their triumphalism. Both of these movements essentially cannot abide, they cannot tolerate any competing idea systems. They're expansionist, they demand that you bow down to their belief systems, they cannot brook any sort of dissent or criticism, and ultimately, at the end of the day, they both wish to dominate as the ideologies not just in the immediate abroad, but also beyond that point. So what unites them, I think, ultimately, is that since Judeo-Christian Western civilization stands in their way, it's the key stumbling block to each of their aims to be the global hegemons, essentially, as belief systems. They are perfectly comfortable partnering, even though on paper they might look a little bit different, in particular given that most progressives might define themselves as secular humanists, whereas Orthodox Muslims are doggedly devoted and pious when it comes to their faith. So what unites them is their adversary. They are willing to set aside whatever differences they might have in order to overcome that adversary. And the focus on Jews and Israel as sort of the collective Jew is something that has developed over a period of decades, really if you look back at the start of the Cold War and the 60s and beyond, there was a concerted effort in the Soviet Union to flood the Middle East 
with anti-Semitic literature as a means of fomenting Jew hatred, with that Jew hatred being viewed as sort of a proxy war on America, ultimately, and American allies. I think, ultimately, the way that it has manifested itself is that Jews, and using Israel as an excuse so as to not appear to be hating of Jews specifically, even though it's very clear that everywhere anti-Zionism ultimately proves to be Jew hatred, proves to be anti-Semitism. Ultimately, what it comes down to is Jew hatred serves as the glue that holds these two, what I would call this intersectionalist left Islamist movement together. But that Jew hatred is really what Jews represent, the values and principles that Jews represent, and also what Jews have accomplished as representatives of Judeo-Christian Western civilization. So I stress in the book that while there is Jew hatred, virulent Jew hatred, among both progressives today, for example, the Corbinite movement uh, in the UK, as well as in the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, and on the other side, the Islamists, ultimately, it is really Judeo-Christian Western civilization, but it's Jews that are the scapegoat, that are sort of the representative of it, the, the symbolic uh, sort of personification of the values that they seek to triumph over. But it's not just about Jews. It's about anyone who believes in this great civilization that we have and this great country that we live in. Throughout the book, um, you come up with some very uh, powerful arguments uh, supporting your thesis. Um, one of them one of the arguments which I was particularly taken by is that not only is Omar and her supporters opposed to the American founding, but they also reject the movement of Dr. Martin Luther King and the entire civil rights movement of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Uh, it is still going on in some in some form, and because King and company were looking to integrate into the society, and these people are looking to destroy the current society. Is that correct? Yes. The, the way I would define it is that if you believe in identity politics, that is, if you try to pit different so-called groups against each other on the basis of whatever arbitrary characteristics that you pick rather than the content of their character, as Martin Luther King harped on as being the highest ideal to which you should judge people, is judge them on who they are, not these other characteristics they have no control over, then you seek to unmake the American identity. So let me say that again. If you believe in dividing people on the basis of identity, you believe in disunity, disuniting the country. Ultimately, at the end, you believe in unmaking a common shared American identity. And if you don't have a common shared American identity, you really don't have a country at the end of the day. So my view is that they have completely perverted what King's movement was about to the great detriment of the country, to the, our social cohesion, to the fabric of what's supposed to hold us together by basically saying, no, every group, every group so-called is different. And we can pit them against each other for cynical political purposes, rather than treating people as individuals with their own agency, unique, that bring different talents, skills, and ambitions to the table. They actually view people explicitly on the basis of their skin color, 
and all of these other characteristics. And that completely flies in the face of a colorblind ideal that the country was supposed to seek to achieve. And so I would argue that, yes, they've set back civil rights in this country, even though they would claim that they are actually the champions of civil rights by trying to divide us on these bases rather than seeking to unite us on shared values and principles. Ben Weingarten, uh, once again, I, I want to thank you, but I also want to urge people to purchase your book and read and per purchase multiple copies and uh, pass them around. Uh, the book is called American Ingrate, and it's an extremely important book. There are many other topics that we can talk about, and I would love to have you back to talk about them. Uh, and I would also will be looking to see what the reaction to your book is, because it really delves in to the guiding ideology, which has now taken over the Democratic Party. Very unfortunate. I mean, I've fought, I've been fighting Democrats uh, for a lot of years, but at least we had a common set of values. What's the new form of the Democratic Party is a party that is actually at war with our society. And, uh, and that, to me, is very disturbing. But I think that this book shines a light on what is happening, and it definitely increased my understanding, and I spend quite a bit of time looking at this stuff and studying it. So once again, Ben Weigarten, I thank you very much for taking the time, and I look forward to having you back on. Alan, thank you so much for the very kind words, and I really appreciate the opportunity. And I would just reiterate them. This is truly about the future of our country. And if we embrace an ideology of national self-loathing, America will not be long for this world. And the impacts on our children and grandchildren will be catastrophic. And that's why this needs to be snuffed out today, really yesterday, but if nothing else, today. I agree completely. Thank you very much, Ben Weingarten.
Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.